You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, a conversation with Bethany Costantino of Best Coast about how sobriety has impacted her music. And we're going to hear about the song that got Clay Frankel of the Chicago band Twin Peaks to fall in love with music. But first, songs about history. Greg, that, of course, is a little bit of the classic Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young song, Ohio. This month marked the 50th anniversary of the Kent State shootings, that horrific incident that left four dead and nine injured in 1970. Within weeks of that campus shooting, CSNNY had produced, recorded, Neil Young had written Ohio, one of the greatest protest anthems of all time, and it was out and in record stores, soon on its way to the top of the charts. We wanted to share some of our other favorite songs about historical people, places, and events, and Mr. Cott, you were going to kick us off. Yeah, Jim, when we started uh, kicking this idea around, the first song that popped into my head was by Gordon Lightfoot, uh, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. That song came out in the in the mid-'70s, and it haunts me still. I just think it's a incredibly well-written song with a haunting arrangement. Uh, what it was was a, uh, a song about uh, the sinking of the SS Edmund Fitzgerald on Lake Superior in November of 1975. Uh, Lightfoot read about it in a Newsweek article and was was moved by it, uh, what happened here. This uh, freighter with a full cargo of iron ore running into the severe winter storm, a near-hurricane-force winds, 35-foot waves, uh, the crew of 29 all perished, no bodies were ever recovered, a true tragedy. And, you know, in the history of songs about historical events, you know, you think about the purpose of songs. They were to create sort of a living history, to tell the stories that maybe have been forgotten or would never be told in the first place. In this case, I think Lightfoot thought, you know, let's create a song here that memorializes these people who lost their lives. In fact, the captain of the freighter was it was supposedly going to be his last voyage. He was going to retire after this trip and uh, obviously never got there. I think a couple of things make this song for me. First of all, the way the band accompanies him, the empathy that is in that recording. There's a pedal steel player by the name of Pee Wee Charles on the song. Ed Ringwald is his real name, but he, everybody knew him as Pee Wee Charles. And then the guitarist, <laughs> Terry Clements, right? These two mm-hmm. guys embroidered Lightfoot's lyrics with these really haunting, reverberating riffs that, uh, to, to my mind, make this such a haunting masterpiece. It's uh, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald by Gordon Lightfoot on Sound Opinions. The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down Of the big lake they call Gitchagumi The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead When the skies of November turn gloomy With a load of iron ore, 26,000 tons more Than the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty 
That good shipping true was a bone to be chewed When the gales of November came early The ship was the pride of the American side Coming back from some mill in Wisconsin As the big freighters go, it was bigger than most With a crew and good captain well seasoned Concluding some terms with a couple of steel firms When they left fully loaded for Cleveland Then later that night when the ship's bell rang Could it be the north wind they'd been feeling? The wind and the wires made a tattletale sound Every man knew as the captain did too T'was the witch of November come stealing the, dawn came the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald by Gordon Lightfoot You know, the legend lives on, Greg, from the Chippewa on down mm-hmm. You are the world's biggest Gordon Lightfoot fan, at least that I know and, <laughs> and I'm with you on that song You know, my first history track pick comes from the great Robin Hitchcock We could literally play a different Robin Hitchcock song every episode of Sound Opinions for a year, and we wouldn't exhaust a a third of his catalog. But Cynthia Mask is the song that sticks with me when it comes to history. His eighth studio album, fourth solo record. This is in the period in the late 80s, early 90s, when Robin Hitchcock is playing with a great band, the Egyptians. But he made this solo record, which is very stripped down, him and acoustic guitar mostly, as sort of a sequel to I Often Dream of Trains in 1984. I came out in 1990, and the song Cynthia Mass kicks off the album. In typical Hitchcock, surrealist, Dada songwriter style, it's hard to say what Cynthia Mask is about. I, I would venture a guess and say it's about uh, posing as something in public that is very different from what you actually are. But he gives two shout-outs, one to my all-time favorite historical figure. I, I have a tattoo. Uh, Napoleon wore a black hat, ate lots of chicken, conquered <laughs> half Europe. <laughs> Napoleon was caught by the British, imprisoned on Elba. He died on the phone. Actually, phones weren't invented yet. Somewhat less nobly, Neville Chamberlain, the famous uh, prime minister of the UK, who went to meet with Hitler in Munich and waved a piece of uh, paper at the camera, according to Hitchcock and according to history. Thank you, Herr Hitler. We have peace in our time. Turned out not to be true. I think Hitchcock is playing with, again, you know, public persona versus private reality. Either way, it's an incredible song, and uh, Napoleon really did. He would devour an entire chicken. Apparently, he could only spare like three or four minutes for dinner every night. He was too much (laughs) of a genius inventing uh, the uh, legal system of of Europe, the euro, you know, and, and, yeah, waging war. (laughs) Not so nobly, uh, but anyway, Cynthia Mask by Robin Hitchcock on Sound Opinions. Napoleon Wore a black hat Ate lots of chicken And conquered half Europe Napoleon Was caught by the British Imprisoned down Elba He died on the phone 
Chamberlain came crawling from Munich with one piece of paper. He waved at the camera. Peace in our time. Oh, thank you, Herr Hitler. Tell that to the Polish. Tell that to the Jews. You take your babes up to the bathroom, and then you lead them into the bedroom. Narrowly, babes, for pleasure and profit. Correctly applied could bring good results. Cynthia Mouse, you're wearing a Cynthia Mouse. Cynthia Mouse. Cynthia Mask by Robin Hitchcock. Uh, Jim, I think uh, Robin's got a song for every moment. Uh, there, there is no moment that uh, has, has gone by that uh, Robin couldn't write a song about. Whenever we do a list show, I can, I can always find a Robin Hitchcock song or a Neil Young song. A brilliant artist, without a doubt. My next historical song is 99 Luft Balloons or 99 Red Balloons, as it is known in its English language version by the German band Nina. It was a number one hit across the world in 1983-84. I think one of the reasons it struck such a chord is that it came at a very fragile time in the world's history, really. Uh, the height of the Cold War between the West and the Soviet Union, set off by that Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, and the heightened potential for a nuclear war hadn't been experienced in this way since the Cuban Missile Crisis, I think, 20 years earlier. So it, it came from a specific image that one of the, the song's co-writers witnessed at a Rolling Stones concert in West Berlin in the early 80s. In the middle of the concert, the Stones let loose these balloons. And he kind of imagined, okay, here we are in West Berlin. What would happen if those balloons floated over East Berlin? And then his imagination took over, okay? Somebody in East Berlin, you know, notices these UFOs, doesn't know exactly what this is. They're mistakenly perceived as a threat, resulting uh, at the end of it as a nuclear war. And, it, you know, that may seem totally far-fetched, but at the time, this level of paranoia was pretty deep around the world. And, you know, you talk about a fault line for the Cold War. Uh, you can't uh, get any deeper than the Berlin Wall dividing East and West in, in Germany. So 99 red balloons launched on one side of the divide, and, and here we have this nuclear war. Again, uh, one of those notions that seems now kind of silly, but at the time, it seemed viable. Anything could have triggered a war. We had uh, people in power, Reagan in America, Thatcher in England, uh, the Soviets in Afghanistan. It was a, a troubled time for the world. 99 Luft balloons. Here's the English language version. 99 red balloons from Nina on Sound No 
99 Luft Balloons by Nina Gregg, uh, a classic of the Cold War. I prefer the German version, but they're both mm-hmm. great. I'm actually going to tread on some uh, Greg Cott turf here with my next pick, which is uh, Uncle Tupelo's New Madrid from the album uh, Anodyne, the fourth and final uh, release by Uncle Tupelo. He wrote a book about those fellows as well as Wilco, Jeff Tweedy's mm-hmm. band that followed it. I was never a huge Uncle Tupelo fan. I, you know, I know that's sacrilege in some corners. Until I heard Anodyne and New Madrid was the song that jumped out at me. You know, everybody had their money on Jay Farrar as the genius of Tupelo. His pal Jeff Tweedy was the other guy. I never thought so. Not after New Madrid. And I love a song. As, as a huge history buff, we should tell listeners, you and me both. Read voraciously a lot of history, not just music, but all history. I'd never heard of the great New Madrid earthquakes of Mm -hmm. 1811 to 1812, the New Madrid fault line in Missouri on a bend in the Kentucky bend of the Mississippi River. These earthquakes that struck in 1811 were so powerful, they actually turned the direction of the Mississippi River for some time. Mm -hmm. And there was an early geologist who kept predicting Ibn Browning that there was going to be an apocalypse in the heart of the country when the New Madrid Fault again triggered another great earthquake. So Tweedy takes this and conflates it with a uh, heartbreak story, a love lost, (laughs) and uh, kind of compares it to the apocalypse of the earthquake that isn't coming. Browning gets a shout out, has a prediction. They've all been told, he says, these earthquakes are coming. He, he, He sings at one point, the rivers burn and then run backwards. All of that's true. I had no idea what it was about. I had to look up New Madrid. The Native American people believe that it was a sign from their spiritual uh, source that they should begin uh, joining together to fight the white man's incursion. That actually didn't happen. I went down one of those rabbit holes, thanks to Jeff Tweedy. Great song, fascinating history, Uncle Tupelo's New Madrid. All my daydreams disaster. Madrid by Uncle Tupelo, one of Jim DeRogatis' history songs. 
When we return, we've got more songs about history. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, my partner. Recording remotely is Greg Cott. This week we are sharing tracks that capture the essence of an historical event, individual or movement, and you have another pick for us. Yes, Jim, uh, I'm going to go with a System of a Down song from 1998. System of a Down, a great metal band that made a series of really fine albums. This song is from their debut. It's called Pluck, P-L-U-C-K, which is an acronym for Politically Lying, Unholy, Cowardly Killers. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I can see why they went with an acronym. Yes, exactly. The band members are all of Armenian heritage, the four members in System of a Down. And the song recounts the Armenian genocide perpetrated by the Ottoman Empire in 1915, when as many as 1.5 million Armenians were killed. What is genocide? It's basically the systematic killing of a population based on ethnicity or nationality. And uh, the Ottoman Empire controlled much of southeastern Europe between the 14th and 20th centuries, broken up after World War I, which meant that uh, Turkey is now the focus of uh, the ire of System of a Down and others who uh, continue to protest uh, this genocide. The lyrics in the song basically demand that Turkey officially be recognized as the main instigator of the uh, genocide. And uh, civil rights activists for about the last century have been calling for reparations and restitution by the modern uh, Turkish government, which has denied responsibility, let alone the historical fact that the event even happened. But the rage in the system of a down song, I think, is very explicit in demonstrating the emotions that are being stirred up by this event, you know, more than 100 years after it happened. Here is Pluck from System of a Down on Sound Opinions. System of a Down with P-L-U-C-K. Greg, they've been worldwide spokespersons for drawing attention to the Armenian Genocide. On a similar dark tip, I am going to go with one of the all-time most moving anthems that I can name. Biko by Peter Gabriel, B-I-K-O. 
the story goes that uh, Gabriel was making his third self-titled solo album, and he was so moved by the tale of the black South African anti-apartheid activist Stephen Biko that he sat down and wrote this song immediately. September 77. First line puts us in the place. Port Elizabeth, weather fine. It was business as usual in police room 619. Stephen Biko was 30 years old. He was imprisoned and beaten to death. It now seems obvious the South African government denied that he was beaten, but, but he died of brain injuries. And he was the 21st black prisoner to die in captivity in one year. In, uh, in South Africa for daring to call for equality of the rights uh, of, of black men and the white settlers. I remember seeing Gabriel three or four times during the period where he was touring behind those first four solo albums, and Biko was always a highlight of his performances. They would inevitably end the concert, and you would have 15,000 or 20,000 people in the audience chanting, Biko, because Biko, right? I mean, just just amazing, emotional. It it prompted me to look into the history of anti-apartheid. Uh, the drums on this song are extraordinary. You have the great drummer Jerry Marotta, anti-symbol. He was all about tom-toms. Gabriel himself uh, playing a drum machine, and Phil Collins adding African percussion. Collins being uh, the leader of Genesis at that point formerly the drummer behind Gabriel. And then you have bagpipes come in. You know, and uh, Gabriel uh, was never more eloquent as a lyricist. You can blow out a candle, but you can't blow out a fire. And it was a movement, and, you know, he was part of, uh, of what eventually changed the world long overdue. Peter Gabriel, Biko on Sound Opinions. Biko by Peter Gabriel, a uh, true stirring anthem of historical proportions, Jim. Speaking of historical proportions, Hurricane Katrina is one of those events of the last uh, 20 years that I think will resonate with anybody who was alive uh, when that happened. Of course, devastating New Orleans, $125 billion in damage, 1,200 deaths in August of 2005. It prompted an outpouring of criticism about President George W. Bush's handling or mishandling 
of the relief efforts in that area. You saw those televised images of residents who remained stranded by the floodwaters without water, food, or shelter for days afterward. These huge sports stadiums being repurposed into effectively refugee camps by all the people uh, displaced by the hurricane. And there were a lot of allegations that uh, race and class factored into the slow government response. Um, the impact of the hurricane was definitely disproportionately felt by, by uh, black and brown people in that city. Uh, note that New Orleans' population is uh, nearly 60% African-American and 6% uh, Latino. So there is a, a huge minority population in New Orleans that was uh, devastated by this hurricane. And uh, people will recall Kanye West blurting out at that uh, televised charity concert immediately afterward that George Bush doesn't care about black people, which in turn prompted that underground single, George Bush doesn't care about black people, by the hip-hop group Legendary K.O., which unfortunately we can't play here because it's strewn with a lot of language that won't pass muster on public radio. But here we have a track from 2008 by one of the most prominent voices in hip-hop, Dwayne Carter, a.k.a. Lil Wayne, at the height of his fame, adding his voice to the chorus of criticism in a track that uh, I, I think embraces the rage, the despair, and the sadness felt by the city's residents in the aftermath of Katrina. Uh, you know, Lil Wayne himself, a, a, a New Orleans resident. Here's Lil Wayne with Tie My Hands from the Carter Three album in 2008 on Sound Opinions. I work at the we all got problems, problems No one's gonna fly down low No one's gonna save us now How you feel? You're not alone We're all just jealous, jealous We don't reach the sky no more We just can't overcome more Tell you what's life And did you know I lost everything But I ain't the only one First came the hurricane Then the morning sun Excuse me if I'm on one And don't trip if I light one I walk a tight one They try to tell me Keep my eyes open My whole city underwater Some people still floating And they wonder why Black people still voting Cause your president's still joking Take away the football team The basketball team Now all we got is me To represent New Orleans No governor no help from the mayor just a steady beating heart and a wish and a prayer let's pray tie my hands by little wayne remembering hurricane katrina uh greg i am going to remember a uh, a slightly more uplifting moment uh, but still devastating in some ways in, in american history uh after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and America was drawn into World War II. Uh, the American Air Force, the American Navy was reeling. It was unclear how long it would take to wake the sleeping giant, that famous line from Hollywood, mm. not from history. Uh, how would America respond to this sneak attack? Uh, our bombers were not able to reach uh, the Japanese mainland and return. So the men under the command of Lieutenant James Doolittle uh, knew they were on a one-way ride to uh, Japan 
to drop bombs to respond to Pearl Harbor, uh, that they would ditch in the ocean. If they were lucky, they might uh, be picked up, but it was doubtful. They would likely either be killed or spend the rest of the war, however long it would take, in in Japanese internment camps, which uh, the world was learning were brutal. Uh, Perubu, (laughs) one of the great American punk bands, first wrote the song 30 Seconds Over Tokyo in their earlier incarnation as Rocket from the Tombs. Uh, There were recordings of of that group doing it, but it would be the debut single by Pear Ubu, released on the label that uh, singer David Thomas started to uh, uh, put out uh, the early Pear Ubu music, Hartan. Uh, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, the A-side, Heart of Darkness, the B-side. They they were not a light, good-time, fun band, Perubu, Mm. but they were experts at creating a mood. The way that guitarists Tom Herman and Peter Lochner uh, have these two intertwining guitar lines from the very beginning of the song, creating uh, instantaneously this feeling of tension, incredible tension, uh, what it would be like to be in a, uh, as, as uh, uh, Thomas calls it, a metal dragon locked in time, this plane flying through the air that is going to drop bombs on Tokyo, skimming waves of an underground sea in some kind of dream world fantasy. Uh, one-way ride. <laughs> Got a ticket to mm. a one-way ride. Indeed. They did. History remembers Doolittle as a hero. Uh, I think a lot of this, uh, not to get uh, too academic about it, a lot of this was inspired by Thomas watching 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, the Hollywood movie version of this World War II story. Uh, but a great a great tune it is, and I checked the archives. We've never played it on Sound Opinions. Only 756 <laughs> episodes to get to this song. Perubu. Flew awfully in the hills of dawn In a metal dragon lost in time A skimming waves of an underground sea With some kind of dream world fantasy Circle on a canopy, a 25 racing on a bright green sea. Ahead of the timber of an alien land, the time to give ourselves to strength, our sand. In the sky, reaching twisted claws on every side. No place to run, no place to hide. No turning back on a suicide ride. 30 Seconds Over Tokyo by Pear Ubu, an absolute 
classic. And that wraps up our history songs segment. We now want to hear from you. What are your favorite songs about an historical incident or place or person? Call 888-859-1800. Leave us your response and why. Coming up, we hear from singer and songwriter Bethany Costantino about sobriety and handling difficult situations. And the song that got Clay Frankel of the band Twin Peaks hooked on Sonics. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis, and that's a bit of Master of My Own Mind from Best Coast. Led by singer Bethany Costantino, Best Coast came onto the indie scene in 2010 with its debut album, Crazy For You. Their fourth and latest record is called Always Tomorrow. And that album deals a lot with Bethany's struggles with alcohol and her newfound sobriety. Bethany came by the Sound Opinions studios back when people could, and her band played here in Chicago at the beginning of March, mere days before we began social distancing and tours were postponed and then canceled. Our producer, Alex Claiborne, spoke with Bethany Costantino about her decision to get sober and how it's affected her life and her music. Thank you so much, Bethany, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. The newest album, Always Tomorrow, came out in February, February 21st. Mm -hmm. And it's about your sobriety and a lot about self-care, which Mm -hmm. I personally love. Could you tell me a little bit about when you realized that alcohol was getting in the way of you living your life and doing what you wanted to do? And how did you take action? I feel like I always knew that I kind of had an issue I never really drank like regular people do. I've, I think I just always thought that I was like a really cool party girl. And then being in this industry, especially like the touring part of it, alcohol is accessible at any point in the day. So I could continue to drink the way that I did because nobody was really telling me like, oh, you shouldn't do that because I almost feel like it's expected of a rocker. You party. And then basically after the end of the last album cycle, which was in about 2015, like right before the election, I was like really, 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 really dark. And I was just doing it a lot by myself and at home and just isolating super hard. And then the last time I drank, I just like woke up the following day and was so miserable and so depressed and so sad and was just like, okay, I got to do something here. And I had tried in the past. I had said, I'm going to stop and just never really did. And I don't know. It was just something about that last time that finally I was like, I can't keep doing this. And I haven't since. So How do you think alcohol affected your music and when you made that change, how do you think musically affected the way that you create and the way that you perform? 
it's interesting because not fully half, but some of the songs on this album were written before I got sober. And then the sort of the trickle-down effect of sobriety, I feel like it started to affect a lot of the other, you know, the songs that I started writing after I got sober, and those sort of felt like they had a lot more awareness in them. Because I think before I got sober, I didn't have a lot of self-awareness. I was very wrapped up in myself and very wrapped up in this idea that, like, everything on Earth sucked. I was just so easily catapulted into this spiral of darkness. And I think after I got sober... And started doing like really intense therapy and really taking care of myself in a lot of different ways. That was really when I started to realize, oh, this idea of like acceptance and just sort of accepting the present moment and that I can't really do anything outside of what's happening directly in front of me. That really started to affect the music and that really very much so started to affect the lyrics, too, because I think it sort of allowed me to look at my old self and my present self and sort of almost face it head on. So I almost feel like I used music throughout this process of getting sober as a way to sort of like face my demons. On Friday nights I don't spend too much time lying on the bathroom floor like I used to The demons deep inside of me, they might have finally been set free How are you doing in social situations or in your work environment, obviously, like you mentioned, what do you do in those situations? How do you practice that self-care to set yourself up for success? This is my first tour that I've done sober. I've played shows sober, but never done a full tour. And I'm around the guys in the band. No one else is sober. Like everybody's drinking. But I'm very fortunate that like I can be around it and not really want to partake in it. I've worked on myself enough to this point that I know what it would look like if I drank and I know that I just feel so much better not drinking and we went to like Dave and Buster's and I was like do you guys have non-alcoholic beer and they were like yeah we have O'Doul's I was like cool I'll have one O'Doul's and I don't drink that stuff very often but like sometimes it's fun when I'm just out with people that are drinking just be like cool look at me I'm partying with like my (laughs) N.A. beer I I take really good care of myself, and and if I ever feel like I'm in a compromising situation or in a social situation that feels uncomfortable, I just leave, or I'll put headphones in or go to a different room. On the bus, sometimes I'll just go to my bunk if I feel like I'm just not really down to be around the party vibes. I've just learned, really, it's boundaries. It's just learning, oh, okay, I can just remove myself from this situation if I need to. I used to drink nothing but Crawl all the way back home. I think as an entertainer, you can get into the trap of trying to please audiences, trying mm-hmm. to please other people, whether it's the people around you that are working with you, whatever, and to forget about the things that you need to recharge, basically, to make the music that you're making. Yeah. It's interesting because we predominantly sleep on the bus because we'll, like, get off out of a show, get on the bus, and then drive to the next venue. But since we did a show in Evanston last night and then tonight in Chicago, we were able to sleep in a hotel room. And that's the first time I've been in a hotel room after a show on this whole run. So my adrenaline after a show is very... I'm not like in the zone to be like, oh, I'm so sleepy. I'm going to go to sleep. (laughs) So when I got to the hotel room, it was like 1 a.m. And I knew I had to wake up really early. And I was so tired, physically tired. But my brain is just going. And it made me realize I was like, ah, this is when I would have usually poured myself a drink or two, popped a pill, done my thing, and then just sort of like 
zoned my way out into sleep. And that is something that is very interesting about being sober now on the road is the come down of yeah. like getting off stage is a little tricky. But what I've been doing, and I know this is probably going to sound really cheesy, is I've just been lighting the candle and doing like <laughs> a sheet mask and then putting on some yeah. really crappy reality TV thing that just gets me out of my head and helps me zone out. You know, this works yeah. the same way that works alcohol well. did, but I don't wake up with a hangover. I just wake up like, I'm sleepy. Because you're in the public eye, do you ever feel pressure as a role model to keep going and do you feel like it's extra weight or do you feel like it's something that's been positive for you to share and be an inspiration to so many people? There are definitely days where I have to talk about heavy stuff and doing interviews and standing up on stage and talking about stuff or just meeting kids outside of shows that say things to me where sometimes it does the weight of it sometimes hits me and I'm like, oh my God, like I have to stay healthy for these people. But then it's sort of, I remember like, oh, that's my old brain creeping in. And then these new tools and techniques I have kind of step in and they're like, no, you don't. You just have to take care of yourself. And you just have to be, you just have to remember that these people see something in you and that's awesome. But at the end of the day, I have to put myself first. And that is why there are certain days where happened to me in San Francisco. This guy, I was walking to a hotel in the morning. I was like in my pajamas. I had just gotten (laughs) off the bus. I hadn't brushed my teeth. I felt so gross. And this guy was like, can I take a picture with you? And I just looked at him and I was like, I'm really sorry. Thanks for your support. But I'm just really not, really don't feel like having my picture taken right now. And he was very cool about it. And that is, again, boundaries and things I've learned now that it's like, it's okay for me to give a certain amount of myself and keep the rest for just me. And I know that if I had said to that guy, sure, we can take a picture, I would have walked away being like, why did I do that? I didn't want to take the picture. And now I know that it's okay for me to just be like, sorry, I can't. And that is, I think, the thing that's really kind of keeping me level-headed through all of this is just remembering I can give a little, but I don't have to give everything. I would say to anybody that feels like they might be struggling with any sort of addiction, food, alcohol, drugs, people, sex, like whatever it is, reach out to somebody and just talk to somebody, somebody that you really trust that you feel like you can just admit these things to. Because honestly, what I learned is once you say it out loud, it really becomes real. And that's why I think I avoided therapy for so long because I was like, once I spill my guts – how do I go back from that, you know? Yeah. And I was essentially spilling my guts via song for <laughs> for a very <laughs> long time and didn't catch it, you know? But that's why I'm saying I think it really is up to all of us to sort of like figure these things out for ourselves. But when the time is right for you, I think it will happen. But really the biggest advice I can give is just to reach out to people. A hundred percent. Thank you so much, Bethany, Thank for talking you. with me today. Totally. Thanks. That was our producer, Alex Claiborne, interviewing singer and songwriter Bethany Cosentino of the band Best Coast. a little bit of the title track from Twin Peaks' fourth album, Lookout Low. 
Singer and guitarist Clay Frankel recently spoke with our producer Andrew Gill about how he got hooked on Sonics by watching the 2004 documentary Dig. That movie follows psychedelic revivalists the Brian Jonestown Massacre and the band's leader, Anton Newcomb, through the ups and downs of the music industry at the turn of the millennium. For many adults, the film was more like a cautionary tale, but Frankel says from the first song in the movie, he knew rock and roll was the life for him. And she would say I was gold. My dad, I think he has a great taste in music, and he would always play a lot of music growing up, like Flaming Lips, Blondie. I remember he had his Curtis Mayfield record I was really fond of. Yeah, so I was about you know 10 or 11 years old, and my dad came home with the documentary Dig. So I remember sitting on you know the edge of his bed, watching it, and just like from the get-go, just blew me away. Like that first song playing over the introduction to the Brian Jonestown Massacre with Servo. And it's an amazing song, and it's really simple, and I learned how to play it like very quickly, and it really was like the first time I had learned a song that sounded exactly like the one on, on a record. So I could like get together with you know, my neighbor friend, and like, we could play it darn good. Yeah, A-C-D-A. A lot of music, you know, just be like a certain famous person, or like, or you know, even with like Led Zeppelin or something, it's just already such a, a monument that it's just like impossible to like see how anyone could be something like that. Whereas with this movie Dig, like the Brian Jonestown Massacre, you just get a, in their case, a giant group of people together, you know, some simple chords, and like you just kind of have like this like cult mindset, and it's kind of like a band as a gang, and I never really thought of it that way. It seems so fun. I mean, you know, it was like no one looks like that on the street, you know, no one, I had never even like been to a show yet. Yeah, it was so visceral. I mean, it was just, especially when that first song plays, Servo, it's like a freeze frame of him. And then he like punches the camera and the camera shakes. It was just like right in your face. It was so exciting. And I'm sure you're not And you know, the first concert they show is when they have the big fist fight at the Viper Room. And then he says, You okay, man? Yeah, I'm okay. Did you get hurt? Is that blood on you? Yeah. From where? From your people's hand. faces. Blood from other people's faces. And I would quote that to my buddy all the time. We would say that all the time to each other. If I were to watch it for the first time now, there's such a sadness in that movie and just like people not being able to communicate and terrible drug use. But to an 11-year-old, that was fascinating to me. And I wanted to do drugs. I wanted to wear crazy leather jackets and big sunglasses and play in a rock and roll band and get in a fight on stage, you know? It's got a flute in there. And, oh, that's another great thing about that band. Just, like, the instruments they used. And, like, love the organ. And, you know, they're playing the sitars all the time. Every time I would watch that movie, you know, the first thing I would be doing after I watched it would be trying to record a song, trying to write a song. Fast forward, we opened a show that was us and then the Brian Jones Sound Massacre and Slow Dive. And I remember we were sound checking. I had a 
and uh, Anton walked in. He walked into like the open area and was just kind of standing there looking crazy and uh, watching the sound check. And that was, I started getting those like young flutters in my heart again. <laughs> it was actually strange. I feel like I actually got like violently ill after we played that show and couldn't really tell you the reasons why. Maybe it was some sort of like subconscious like, whoa, you know. It's also a strange movie, I feel like, to watch now with, like, the experience I've had. Tour is actually a lot more fun, and it's, like, <laughs> a lot more joy involved. But um, in that movie, I think they wore a lot of uh, the yellow sunglasses, which are, like, for, like, truckers, you know, night vision sunglasses. They kind of light up the road at night. And they would wear those a lot. And I remember I when I first saw them on tour at the gas station, I was like, oh. And I think they were, it was actually a Love's, and Love's gas station's, sell all sorts of wild stuff and they sell like the Davy Crockett hats too which they wore a lot in that movie Dig so I remember I bought the Davy Crockett hat and I bought the trucker sunglasses and you know I had uh, Cadian or someone you know take a picture of me doing the the surfer pose from the beginning of the movie and I sent it to my buddy that like I used to watch the movie all the time with and I was like look I'm I'm doing it I'm doing the thing <laughs> That was Clay Frankel telling us about the song that got him hooked on Sonics. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, you and I are going to reveal our favorite concerts of all time. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you get such things. The show was produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, and Andrew Gill. And a special shout-out to Dave Miska and all the engineers at WBEZ. It's been lonely for them down at the pier. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey guys, this is Chris calling from Winston-Salem. And just want to let you know that I really, really enjoyed your travel show. Um, And it got me thinking about the kinks. And there's kind of more obvious songs you could go to, like Shangri-La or Waterloo Sunset. But... One of my favorite songs of theirs is kind of a deep cut off the Muscle Hillbillies uh, record called Oklahoma USA. Our life we work, but work is a bore. If life's for living, what's living for? And it's about a working class kid in, in London imagining this other world, this other life. And it's heartbreaking because you kind of know she's never going to get there. And it's, it's also kind of a fantasy. And yet, it provides this escape, this kind of bittersweet hope for her. Thanks again for putting it all together and doing what you do. Hi, my name is Kelly, and I'm calling from Philadelphia. I think a favorite travel song of mine is uh, Guy Clark's L.A. Freeway. Um, It's definitely a song about moving on. It strikes a balance between holding on and letting go. I can just get off of this L.A. freeway without getting killed a car. Smoke to some land. I ain't bought, 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 and it's his to you.
has a real description of packing up, moving on to something a little bit better in the current situation. Um, that's it. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Katie from the Chicago area, and I'm calling about the virtual travel songs. Thanks so much for taking us on uh, some trips. And um, I also thought about the City of New Orleans, um, the hit song by Arlo Guthrie that was written by Chicago's very own Steve Goodman about the train that goes from Chicago down to New Orleans and what it does and sees along the way. Good morning, America, how are you? Said, don't you know me? I'm your native son. I'm the train they call the city of New Orleans. I'll be gone 500 miles when the day is done. Thanks a lot, you guys. Bye. Greg and Jim, this is Rob Shaw calling from the middle of Canada and my hometown of Winnipeg. Enjoyed your recent show with songs about traveling, and certainly there's a yearning for that during our current need to stay home as much as possible. On the other hand, I've been thinking more about the places I don't ever want to visit. Steely Dan never going back to their old school, Morrissey bemoaning a coastal town they forgot to close down, Elvis Costello not wanting to go to Chelsea, ever. With this imposed staycation, I think we're all seeing our hometowns in a new light. Like the weaker than bittersweet ode to where I live, one great city. The narrator adamant that he hates the place while meaning the exact opposite. The guess who sucked, the jets were lousy anyway. The same route every day. And in the turning lane. Someone stalled again He's talking to himself And here's the price of gas Repeat his phrase I hate Winnipeg Love the show. Hello from Canada. Take care. Be well. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.